The following is a pre-recorded program. The high holy days are upon us. It's time for The Line of Fire with your host, biblical scholar and cultural commentator, Dr. Michael Brown. Your voice for moral sanity and spiritual clarity. Call 866-34-TRUTH to get on The Line of Fire. And now, here's your host, Dr. Michael Brown. Hey friends, welcome to The Line of Fire broadcast. It is Thoroughly Jewish Thursday, and this Sunday, September 25th, is the beginning of the Jewish New Year. Now, in biblical times, it is the first day of the seventh month, the day of the trumpet blast, the sounding of the shofar, followed 10 days later by Yom Kippur Day of Atonement, and then five days after that, the week-long celebration of Sukkot Tabernacles. But as centuries evolved, uh, centuries went on, there were calendar changes, and this has become the beginning of the Jewish New Year. You say, how'd that happen? There's debate in terms of exactly what the sequence was, how far back this goes. But uh, this much we know, that by the time of Jesus, there were different uh, different years, different calendrical years. For example, in, in most countries, you have the school year is different than the calendar year, right? School year starts end of August, beginning of September, ends normally around May. That's the school year. You have a tax year, you know, fiscal year, things like that. Well, that's what happened. You had different different years in ancient Israel, different new years, and this became the one that was now the new year. But it's not like in the West, the secular new year celebration and people partying. It's it's quite the opposite. You begin the new year with a time of repentance. You begin the new year with a time of of introspection. And even non-religious Jews get much more religious at this time. Now, if you've been listening to me over the years or you're familiar with Jewish tradition, some of this will be familiar to you. But I know there's so many folks that, that uh, listen for the first time or catch us for the first time or are new to our ministry. So I want to step back and share a little bit more with you. I won't be taking calls today, but I will be answering questions that were posted earlier in the week some Jewish questions I'll be asking. So don't post anything now on social media. I won't be taking calls, but we'll be answering some really interesting Jewish-related questions. And then I want to play you a clip from an event September 26 of 2020 with tens of thousands in D.C. at the mall in, in, in our nation's capital, uh, praying for America, crying out. It was a non-political event, a non-partisan event. It was crying out to God for mercy on America Mercy on Israel, mercy on the nations. And there was a culminating time led by Jonathan Kahn, who had organized the event of, of sounding the shofar, of blowing the shofar and using that as a signal to call us to pray. The shofar blast being a wake up call, being something that stirs you, being something that gets attention, something that pierces the atmosphere. Oh God, hear our cry as we raise our voices. So I'm going to play that clip for you a little bit later in the broadcast. All right, so if you are a traditional Jew, then you have really been getting your heart set. And right now you'll be getting your heart set to lead into what are known as Yamim Nohaim, the days of awe. Speaking of the 10-day period from the first day of Tishrei, the seventh month on the biblical calendar, but again, the, the first month of the later Jewish calendar, so from that day to Day of Atonement, 10 days, 10 is often the number of testing in Scripture. Remember Moses in the wilderness says to Israel, you've tested me 10 times, God's, God's position, you've tested me 10 times. Daniel asked to be tested over a 10-day period with 
with him and his companions. Uh, Job says to the friends, you've tested me 10 times. Jesus says to the church in Smyrna, you'll be tested for, for 10 days. So 10 is often the number of testing. So here you have from the first day to the, to the 10th day, this is the time between the new year and the day of atonement. So in traditional Judaism, you believe that, that your life is being weighed in the balance, that your good deeds are being weighed against your bad deeds. In fact, the astrological symbol for the month of Tishrei is, is scales, it's weights. So your life is being weighed. And if your good deeds outnumber your bad deeds, then your name is written in the book of life for, number, for another year. Now you say, that could sound very legalistic. Well, for some it can be. Religion can be legalistic. Any faith can become legalistic. And, and even more so with this mentality. But a traditional Jew will be zealously uh, repenting, zealously looking to God, zealously looking to make things right. Because I, I did not grow up in a traditional Jewish community and have not lived in the midst of a traditional Jewish community over the years, I learned certain things from the outside. And so I was raised in a fairly nominal Jewish home. But when I lived in Maryland, we were about 15 minutes from a really good Jewish bookstore, Orthodox Jewish bookstore, with a great, great selection of books to buy. And, and every year, as it would get closer to Rosh Hashanah, uh, Yom Truah, biblically, so the day of the, the trumpet blast, sounding of the shofar, uh, as we would get closer to that, there would be a special table with books piled. This wasn't just, you know, here are a couple, we got a couple of these titles, here's a new book, here's a new book. No, no, no. T- piled with books in English and Hebrew on repentance. Why? Because traditional Jews would be specially studying at that time the laws of repentance to, to repent more deeply, to repent more adequately. Tshuva, repentance, a, a turnabout. This is a central tenet of Judaism. Now, what's interesting is it's a central tenet of the whole Bible. It's a central tenet of, of what Christians call the Old Testament, Jews call the Tanakh, the Hebrew Bible. It's a central tenet of the New Testament. John the Immerser, Jesus himself, the apostles, that's the first word that they preach, repent, turn to God, turn away from your sin. And, and that then ties in with atonement. Now, I want to read to you from Leviticus 23. This is really interesting what you're about to see. So Leviticus 23, one, the Lord spoke to Moses saying, speak to the Israelite people and say to them, these are my fixed times, my appointed times, the fixed times of the Lord, which you shall proclaim as sacred occasions. What's really interesting is that they are called Moadim, appointed times. And it says in Genesis 1.14 about the sun, moon, etc., that these are put in place for, for days, right? but also for Moadim. Some translate with seasons, but others say, no, Moadim means for the appointed times. God put these in the, in, in the universe. God put these around the earth so that these would be fixed times to celebrate the, the festivals of the Lord. Now, based on that, there are many Christians who say we should follow these to this day because they are the Lord's appointed times. If you do it, joining in with the heritage of Israel, looking forward to the coming of the Messiah. There's nothing wrong with that. If you do it as if, if I don't do it, I'll be sinning against God. Or if I do it, there's some magical spiritual benefit, then you'll be in error. But if you say, hey, we have a biblical calendar, why not join in with the Jewish people, but do it in our unique way focused on Yeshua? God bless you. No reason not to. So the first fixed time that's mentioned is the Sabbath, right? Leviticus 23.3, 3. 
On six days, work may be done, but on the seventh day, there shall be a Sabbath of complete rest, a sacred occasion. You shall do no work. It shall be a Sabbath to the uh, Sabbath of the Lord throughout your settlement. Then it goes on with the annual calendar. Verse four. These are the set times of the Lord, the sacred occasions, which you shall celebrate each at its appointed time in the first month, right? On the 14th day of the month. So this is now Passover. So the biblical calendar begins with Passover, not with, with the sounding of the trumpets. In the fifth month, on the 14th day of the month at twilight, there shall be a Passover offering to the Lord. And on the 15th day of that month, the Lord's feast of unleavened bread. You shall eat unleavened bread for seven days. So that goes on, right? Then the verse 23, 9. The Lord spoke to Moses saying, speak to the Israelite people and say to them, when you enter the land that I'm giving to you, and you reap its harvest, you shall bring the first sheaf of your harvest to the priest. He shall elevate the sheaf. So this goes on with the celebration of, of first fruits and then the, the counting of time between the Passover and this event. So we have the next major day on the biblical calendar from the day on which you bring the sheaf of elevation offering the day after the Sabbath, you shall count off seven weeks. They must be complete. So then this is Pentecost Shavuot, the feast of weeks, which follows 50 days after the Passover. All right. So then you have, you have that it's described at length here. And now we go on to the next season. All right. So when you reap the harvest of your land, you know, shall reap all the way. Okay. Then verse 23. The Lord spoke to Moses saying, speak to the Israelite people thus in the seventh month on the first day of the month. So that's what will begin the evening of September 25th. Remember evening and morning. So the Jewish calendar starts with the evening, then goes to the morning. The Lord spoke to Moses saying, speak to the Israelite people thus in the seventh month on the first day of the month, you shall observe complete rest, a sacred occasion commemorated with loud blasts. You shall not work at your occupations. You shall bring an offering by fire to the Lord. Okay. What else? That's all it says. That's all it says. You get a little bit more elaboration in numbers, but that's all it says. Of course, it says nothing about being the new year. That's later Jewish tradition. And as part of the larger Jewish community, we, we celebrate that. We send greetings to one another. And you have the abbreviated form. May your name be written in, in the book of life, right? So you may have, may you have another year of, of health in life. That's the, the new year's prayer. But this is all it says. It's the first day of the seventh month on the biblical calendar. Observe complete rest. So it's a Sabbath and don't work. And it's, it's the, the time of the, the, the sounding of the, the loud blasts. That's it. Right. It, It'll be for you, Shabbaton, Zichron, Truah, Mikra Kodesh. So it's a holy time, set apart time, a Sabbath time, and it's for Truah, the trumpet blast, the blast of the shofar. So why is it there? Well, it does seem to prepare the way for what comes 10 days later. The Lord spoke to Moses saying, Mark the 10th day of the seventh month is the day of atonement. It shall be a sacred occasion for you. You shall practice self-denial. You shall bring an offering by fire to the Lord. And on and on it goes. Ah, so what we can deduce is that this time, which is blowing the shofar, that piercing cry, that loud blast, that wake-up call, it is saying, okay, day of atonement is coming, a day of reckoning, a day when you will stand before God, a day when the high priest will make atonement for the sins of the nation and where the whole nation is to afflict itself, deny itself, and turn to God. A sacred time, a critically important time. So this is the wake-up call. This is the shout. Wake from your slumber. Turn from your sin. Turn to God. And as I said, even in much more secular branches of Judaism, 
you'll still have the synagogues filled out at this time of year. You'll still have many people fasting on Yom Kippur that never fast another day of the year and they hardly pray at other times. And they'll be in the synagogue praying. Oh, no, it's not throughout the whole Jewish community, but it is very, very heavily so. And you can be in Israel on a day like that. And if you're out, let's say you're not Jewish, not participating, you can just walk across the highway because there are no cars that are out. It's, it's a time of shutting down and a time of turning to God. So what is it about this day? Trumpet, it's the wake-up call. It's the sounding of the alarm. It's the stirring people of the, of the seriousness of having to give account to God. And it's a healthy thing for every believer to do, to bring their lives before God. If you're, if you're born again, your sins are forgiven. It's not for once and for all atonement, but it is to say, Lord, examine me, search me. I want my life to be pleasing in your sight. I turn away from everything. Okay. It's the Line of Fire with your host, Dr. Michael Brown. Get on the Line of Fire by calling 866-34-TRUTH. Here again is Dr. Michael Brown. Welcome, friends, to Thoroughly Jewish Thursday. Michael Brown, delighted to be with you. Not taking calls today. We'll be answering some questions that were posted earlier in the week on Facebook. But this is a great time to pray for Jewish people worldwide. This is a great time to pray for eyes and hearts and minds to be opened. This is a great time to pray for people to recognize their need for forgiveness, their need for blood atonement, their need for the Messiah. And a great time to pray, God, open the hearts and minds of the lost sheep of the house of Israel. Some of the most sincere people I know are are religious Jews. Some of the most devoted people I know, people who spend hours praying every day. So they're just praying road prayers, but those road prayers are meaningful to them. In other words, they may be praying prayers they prayed many times, but but for many traditional Jews, they are very, very meaningful and they are heartfelt and they're praying for the redemption of Israel and they're praying for, for personal reconciliation and they're praying for God's will. So it's it's a great time to be joining in intercession for our Jewish people worldwide. All right, let me answer some questions. Jeremy, how can anyone enjoy heaven if their family is not there? I would forgo my chalek, my portion, in Olam Haba in the world to come to save my loved ones. Jeremy, first, that, as you know, is the sentiment of Paul, that he would, he would consider himself accursed, cut off from the Messiah, if it would save his people. Of course, the sacrifice has been made. The Messiah has given his blood. He's laid down his life and we cannot cut ourselves off from him or forfeit our portion in the world to come uh, as a way to let someone else in. Of course, we can fast, we can pray, we can cry out. But that's your question, how can we enjoy heaven? Obviously, it pertains to people who are not raised in the faith, so they can't say, well, I can't wait to see my parents, I can't wait to see my grandparents, I can't wait to see all my other relatives that are in heaven because we came from Christian families. no. You come from a Jewish family, many times you were the only believer in your family. And then as far back as you know, through the generations, there weren't other believers. Does that mean they're all in hell? So how can you enjoy heaven? The same question would come up for a Muslim who comes to faith, or a Buddhist who comes to faith, or a Hindu who comes to faith, or someone from a family of atheists that went back several generations. What, are they all burning in hell? How can I enjoy heaven? So it's a very, very fair question to ask. The simple answer will be, that everything God does is perfect. 
everything God does is good. Everything God does is right. And everything God does has the perfect balance of love and justice and grace and truth. Therefore, whatever happens to our loved ones, and that's for God to know, right? I don't know the state in which each of my parents, grandparents, great-grandparents died. I don't know what happened between them and God. Only God does. But when we look him in the eye, we'll know that whatever he has decided, whatever his decree, whatever his judgment, it's perfectly good and righteous. And looking at him will be filled with joy and will be filled with peace. Now, some would argue that that would indicate that there's some type of annihilation, that, that at some point in time, those that rejected the Lord will be destroyed. So it's a frightful punishment, but then it's, that's it. And there may not even be a memory in that sense in the hearts of the righteous because the others are gone. Others would say, no, no, even the idea of someone suffering will bring us joy because we'll know it's right. Again, that seems like a stretch from our viewpoint. But what I comforted myself in decades ago when my dad died and I didn't know his state before God, he'd been he'd come to church, he was reading the New Testament, he was asking me when is he going to feel something, uh, he would come hear me preach, and that's when he would go to church to hear me preach. So I just thought, okay, God's at work. He's going to come in. God's at work. And then he died suddenly. And it, it was agonizing, of course, the loss of my dad as, as a young man, just, just first grandchild for him, Nancy and I, presented, you know, here's our child, the first, first grandchild. So, you know, it's agonizing losing your dad, my mom, left alone. But then what about his soul? What about eternity? I asked myself, do I know the Lord? What's my father like, my heavenly father? Is there, is there any one that I could imagine being more compassionate, more kind, more long-suffering? No, and I thought, well, then whatever he does is right, and I'm going to trust him. Uh, Terry, uh, how did the Jews go from brown-skinned Semites in 70 AD to white European people with a half-female god and blasphemous new holy books calling themselves Jews, asking for a friend? Okay. <clears throat> First thing, is not a half-female god. He's identified through scripture as the heavenly father. He's called father. His name Yahweh is used with masculine pronouns and verbal associations over 6,000 times. Uh, on and on and on it goes. Now, does he have caring characteristics like a mother? Yes, just like Paul as an apostle said, we cared for you like a mother. But he's not a half female God. That's the first thing. Second thing. There, there are not blasphemous new holy books, but there are Jewish traditions. As the Jewish people were very devoted to the Torah and law, then over the centuries, new traditions developed. And as those new traditions developed, they were ultimately put in writing. And some are anti-Christian, but the vast majority are not dealing with that at all. They're just start reading the Mishnah. Get a copy of the Mishnah and start reading Brachot and just go through it. See how far you get. Right, tell your friends, start going through it. It's not blasphemous new holy books. It's building on the previous traditions and laws in a way that they thought was right and suitable. Of course, we reject the ultimate conclusions, rejecting Yeshua as the Messiah. But this is a logical extension of the people devoted to the Torah. Look at our legal system. You go to the court. You got sub subset this and this clause here. And that's just for local ordinances. And, you know, the laws develop. So that's what you have in, in rabbinic Judaism. Uh, but how did they go from brown-skinned, so the description we have from, oh, a couple hundred years after Jesus is like boxwood, so different than the Ethiopians, the Africans who were darker-skinned, and the Germans who were Caucasians. 
how do they go from that? So, you know, brown skin to, to what we see today. Well, Jews around the world, they're brown skin, they're black skin, they're red skin, they're yellow skin, they're white skin, they're all different skin because as we've traveled around the world, we've intermarried. And as people have converted to Judaism and intermarried, then the more and more people that uh, convert and intermarry, the more and more will look like those people. And if we live in a place long enough, then we'll look totally like it. So Indian Jews look totally Indian and African Jews look totally African and Chinese Jews look totally Chinese and, and American Jews look totally American in terms of Caucasian. Um, so that's just the way it happens. No mystery. No mystery. So your, your friend is imbibing a lot of anti-Semitic junk is the problem. So hopefully if he wants truth, the, the truth will set him free. Um, Lucas, is practicing Judaism idolatry or is Judaism still acceptable by God? Uh, it's a big question. Let me try to answer it as simply as I can. Judaism worships one God and one God only. That is the foundation of Judaism. No man is worshipped, only God. In that sense, it's the exact opposite of idolatry because it is renouncing all of the so-called gods and saying there's one God and one God only. Is Judaism acceptable in God's sight? Well, there are many Jewish practices that are honored by the Lord. There are many Jewish practices where Jews are seeking to be faithful to the worship of one God, observe the Sabbath, observe the laws that he gave to set them apart. It's the Jewish community worldwide, the traditional Jewish community that will be celebrating the holy days with great zeal, that'll be confessing sin on the Day of Atonement and praying for forgiveness and going through various rites asking for forgiveness. Those are all beautiful expressions of sincere hearts. At the same time, uh, let's, let's understand that Judaism has fundamentally rejected Jesus as the Messiah. So can Judaism save? No. Can Judaism fully reconcile a Jewish person to God? No. And if Judaism as a system becomes the thing that someone's worshiping, then that's idolatry. But is Judaism idolatry? No, Judaism is set to worship and honor the one God and one God only. Can traditional Judaism bring someone from sin to reconciled, from under judgment to forgiven? No, because the Messiah has been rejected and his eternal blood sacrifice has been rejected. All right, let's see. Um, John, why is there so much emphasis on all things Jewish and some Christians when God divorced her? for continued infidelity, and took for himself a new bride, the church. Israel in the first covenant has been relegated to the status of an ex-wife. Why not celebrate where we are and what we have? Why the tendency to look back at the failure rather than learn from that failure and celebrate it? Uh, there, there's, a, there's a mixture in your question, to be candid. Remember that what we have is based on, built on what God gave to Israel. If you're saved, it's because the Messiah of Israel died for you. If you have any knowledge of God, it's because of the, the prophets of Israel, because of Moses, because of the Jewish apostles. And if you are part of a covenant, it's the new covenant that God made with the house of Israel and house of Judah. And Paul warned the Gentile believers in Romans 11 not to be arrogant, like we are, we are the new kids on the block and God's done with the old ones. No, he said that, that ignorance will lead to arrogance and you'll be cut off yourselves. And that's what's happened through much of church history as the church has severed itself from Jewish roots and tried to create something new and said, we're the new Israel. It has severed itself from much of the divine 
blessing and favor. So yes, in some circles, there's an obsession with Jewishness and Jewish things and, 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 and trying to find out the Jewish background to everything. And on the one hand, on the other hand, that Jewish background is the background from which our faith comes. So what you need to have is a healthy appreciation of God's covenants with Israel. The Sinai covenant, the Sinai covenant was broken by Israel. So God made a new and better covenant with Israel. God's promises to Israel still remain. You as a Gentile believer get grafted in to the promises that God gave to Israel. You don't become the new Israel and you don't replace the old Israel. So there should be healthy appreciation and understanding. The failure was the Sinai covenant. So God made a new and better covenant with whom? With the house of Israel and the house of Judah. That's what happened. Yeah. So let's have a right perspective on that. If you haven't read my book, Our Hands Are Stained With Blood, please get a copy. Make sure you get the second edition come out in 2019. Our Hands Are Stained With Blood. It's The Line of Fire with your host, Dr. Michael Brown. Get on The Line of Fire by calling 866-34-TRUTH. Here again is Dr. Michael Brown. Welcome back, friends, to our thoroughly Jewish Thursday broadcast. Have you checked out our new website? Have you checked it out? Yeah, AskDrBrown.org. We have completely revamped it from beginning to end. Spent months and months and months and months working on it. All this year we've been working on it. Ask Dr. Brown, ASKDRBrown.org. Check it out. And, of course, the Real Messiah website, which we have completely revamped as well to answer your Jewish questions, to send your Jewish friends there. AskDrBrown.org, ASKDRBrown.org. You just click on the Jewish section there or go to realmessiah.com. A tremendous number of resources for you. Massive amount of free resources. Others that you can sign up for as torchbearers, as monthly supporters, and take advantage of those as well. Okay, I want to get to a few more questions that were posted on our Facebook page earlier in the week. But first, I want to take you back to September 26th of 2020. Jonathan Kahn organized an event called The Return. It was leading up to the presidential elections, but it was nonpartisan. There was no preaching of Trump. There was no preaching of Republican, preaching of Democrat. In fact, Jonathan's message was a clear, strong repentance message to the nation and an outreach message to the lost. It was masterfully done and clearly presented. And there were tens of thousands of people there, a day of prayer, uh, a day of fasting for many. And there was a culminating moment, a key moment, where many people who had shofars with them were up on the stage. And Jonathan himself was going to lead in seven trumpet blasts, seven blasts of the shofar, the ram's horn. They said, ah, this is like Pentecostal, charismatic, hocus-pocus. In some cases, it can be, right? Just like playing a pipe organ can get you in a religious trance in other places, you know? This, but when you ground it together with a call to prayer, it, this was a solemn assembly. This was a sacred occasion. People traveled to be there, not to be entertained. It, it, it was an intense meeting, all right? And Jonathan is now going to blow the shofar and call for prayer. So it's not saying something magical happens. But this is the call. This is the shout. This is the, the wake up moment. And, and then people pray, people cry out. So it's, it's a few minutes long, this segment, about six minutes uh, with each of the shofar blasts and then prayer that follows. But I want to take you back to that moment. Uh, this may be different for you. For others, you've been in meetings like this. Again, it's not a magical formula. Rather, it is the, 
the power of the wake-up call, the power of bringing us together and, and, and sounding the alarm and saying, pray, God's people pray, cry out, ask God to move. He's the only one who can do these things. So let's go back to September 26, 2020. The shofar in the scriptures, God ordained the trumpet as a vessel of his power. At the sound of the trumpet, the armies of God triumphed. The sound of the trumpet, the walls of Jericho fell down. The enemy would flee. The power of the Jubilee was unleashed. The blessings of God would break forth. And so now we're going to sound this seven blasts, seven trumpets. And we're going to believe as we pray for, this is a sign of his power, releasing of his power. We're going to pray, we're going to believe for the breakthrough of God, of everything we have done, the blessings of heaven. Seven times. Get ready. Lift up your hands. You can stay, you can stay doing that, guys. Okay, if you can come over here. Okay. The first trumpet. The unleashing of the purposes and power of God on the earth. Pray for it. Pray for it. We pray, Lord, for your power to be breaking forth on the earth. Lord, in, Father, in fullness, the power of God, of heaven. When you hear the sound of the shofar, then give a shout to the Lord. Throughout the earth, 
and let your anointing go forth. you found that stirring if it was new for you consider scripturally how the shofar is used uh, numbers the 10th chapter when the when the children of israel would leave the camp come back to the camp and it would be asking the lord to go with the people and return with the people uh, it, it could be used to to sound for war you know it was used the, the blast of the shofar and the people shouting and the walls of jericho come down so th- there is this sense in scripture shout to the lord the blast of the shofar rise to heaven. Let it be the wake up, the, the stirring moment where we cry out to God together. And as the Sunday night begins, Rosh Hashanah, the traditional new year, biblically Yom Truah, the sounding of the trumpet, the shofar blast. Let that call go out through the Jewish world, a call to turn to God, a call to turn to repentance. And may eyes be opened that we need Yeshua, Jesus, the Messiah. All right, I'm going to go back to questions here. Rachel, does modern day Israel believe there needs to be a third temple in reestablishing of sacrifice for their Messiah to come? Now, same question. Do you believe there needs to be a third temple to fulfill prophecy in the book of Revelation? So modern Israel is a lot of secular Jews, maybe 70% fairly secular, then 30% fairly religious. And of that, maybe 15% ultra religious. And of the religious Jews, they do not believe they need to build a temple 
for the Messiah to come. But rather, when the Messiah comes, he will build the temple. Or when the Messiah comes, then the temple will come down from heaven. So it is not believed that they need to rebuild the temple or reestablish the sacrifice system in order for the Messiah to come. Rather, that is one of the signs that he is the Messiah, that he will build the temple. Or another possible view is that the temple will come down from heaven supernaturally when the Messiah is revealed. Do I believe Revelation requires a third temple? So Revelation 11 and passages like that. If, in fact, it should be understood in a futuristic way, if, in fact, the bulk of the book points to future prophecy, as many Christians would believe, then, yes, there would need to be a physical third temple. I also understand that based on the the fullness of Matthew 24, which has some application to the Jewish community and Jewish world in Jesus' day, and then final application to the Jewish world, Jewish community at the end of the age, and, of course, primarily addressing disciples throughout that. Um, also, I see it alluded to in Second Thessalonians, the second chapter, about the man of sin, the Antichrist, setting himself up in the temple of God. So if that understanding is right, then yes, I do believe that there will be a third temple built before Jesus returns. But I'm not dogmatic on it, because there are different ways to read the book of Revelation. Of course, it's filled with symbolism. And temple of God in Second Thessalonians 2, does it have to mean a physical temple? Could it mean a spiritual temple? Could it mean he tries to exalt himself in the church? There are different ways to interpret it. So I, I personally expect that the third temple will be built before the Messiah returns. And I find it interesting as things unfold at point in that direction. But does it have to happen? Am I dogmatic about it? Personally, no. Others are more so. Uh, I am not. So I expect it, but I'm not dogmatic about it. And traditional Jews believe the Messiah will do it rather than it has to be done in readiness for the It's The Line of Fire with your host, Dr. Michael Brown. Get on The Line of Fire by calling 866-34-TRUTH. Here again is Dr. Michael Brown. Welcome back to Thoroughly Jewish Station. Michael Brown here. Remember, visit our completely revamped website. Tell your friends. Ask Dr. Brown. A-S-K-D-R-Brown.org. All right. I want to answer a few more questions that were already posted on Facebook. Philip. Do you celebrate the Sabbath? Well, I I observe the Sabbath, but not in a legalistic way, meaning that uh, I I do seek to wind down certain activities. So from Friday night through Saturday, uh, as the seventh day, and just in participation with my Jewish people around the world, I do seek to to wind down then and, and press less in my schedule and set aside more time to be with the Lord. But at the same time, I'm often out ministering on weekends. So just like the priest in the temple would work on the Sabbath, and Yeshua alludes to that in the New Testament, so in the same way, I can do ministry. Or if Nancy needed my help with something, I'm I'm happy to do it. I'm, I'm still trying to pull away from other things and get that time of refreshing and renewal. So in a way that it's a gift, but not in a way that traditional Jews would do it in terms of their devotion to it and the set formula to it, but as a gift and in participation with my people, yes, but not not in a, in a legalistic way and not in a way that would be as focused as many of my colleagues and friends. And ultimately, I find 
rest in Yeshua. That's the ultimate fulfillment of Sabbath that I see, but believe in, in the, the good principles laid out by the Sabbath through Scripture. I just don't see it as a, uh, something that is a must uh, that, that I have to do in order to be in right standing with God, but rather as a gift that's been given. Uh, Elliot, why do the Ashkenazi and Sephardic chief rabbis in Israel think they have the authority to say what constitutes a Jew and what doesn't? On their mind, they're doing what their job requires. In other words, when you, when you look at the laws of Moses and you see details and, and you go to the priest or the Levite or, or the judges that are established in your day, if, if, if it's too difficult to figure out in, in some type of major decision you're making, just like we have the higher courts, things get appealed to. So in that sense, they would feel that this is a very important role that they have. Now, are some doing it in a way that we would find discriminatory? or a way that would only recognize their conversions and things like that. It, we would take issue with it, but in their minds, they are seeking to, to preserve the, the people of Israel. And you have to recognize who is a Jew and who isn't, otherwise everything just becomes watered down. So in their mind, they're doing what's right. I would just challenge some of their conclusions. Greg, what do you feel about Gentile use of the shofar, prayer shawl, etc., or will this ruffle too many feathers? Well, I'm, I'm not concerned about ruffling feathers, as long as there's something constructive to come out of it. So I've seen good and I've seen bad. I've seen good in terms of an identification with the, the people of Israel and a joining together of the hearts of Christians with the Jewish people. And I've seen people that find a prayer shawl to be something sacred. And as they envelop themselves in it, 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 it kind of secludes them with the Lord and it feels like a canopy of his love over them, I'm not going to tell them it's wrong. In the same way, the shofar blast that we, we heard earlier uh, in the last segment, that can have power to it. And I have been in many, many church services where at the right moment, the shofar blast just let loose tremendous uh, burst of praise or prayer or a shout of victory. And it was powerful. But like anything else, there can be the downside. When it, it is a distraction, you're trying to worship and shofars are blasting everywhere, where it, it, it has a magical power. If we just blast this, then everybody's debt will disappear overnight, you know, that kind of thing. Uh, and prayer shawl, like, oh, it, like a relic, you know, it's like, like a holy piece of something. Or if I touch this, if I have this, and, and, and then you start getting caught up in, in Jewish practice and Jewish tradition. And next thing you've taken your eyes off Jesus. So there's the downside. If people are Jesus-focused, if people are led by the Holy Spirit, if people are word-based, if people have their priorities right, these things can be beautifully used. But if they distract or pull away from the central focus or begin to mingle the flesh with the Spirit or, or human tradition with the Spirit, then they can be detrimental. And that's not a diplomatic answer. There have been places where I've been where I've had to rebuke it, and say this is wrong and you've got a Jewish fixation and other places where I experience God's blessing. So I'm happy to be black and white on things, but this is, it all depends on who's doing it, how, what the context is. Um, all right. Keith Romans three nineteen seems to indicate clearly that Paul was saying that the law was given to the Jews. Does that mean that non-Jewish Christians who embrace the old Testament law as God's gift to them have misunderstood its purpose? Since there are many, many passages of Scripture that seem to indicate that Jesus has also delivered us from the law itself, like Colossians 2.14, 1 Timothy 1.9, etc. 1 Timothy 1.9 is, is saying you just have to understand the right use of the law. 
It's not saying we've been delivered from it. Colossians 2.14 is really we've been delivered from the debt of sin. That's, that's the IOU that was written against us. And because of the laws that we broke, we were, we were in debt. But Paul plainly does say we're not under the law. We're not under the supervision of the law. So what does that mean? Again, it's a massive question that's endlessly debated. But the, the Sinai covenant was made with the people of Israel. And for Christians to put themselves back under the Sinai covenant is always a mistake. There's never a basis for it. Are there laws from which Christians can learn and benefit? Sure. Uh, many laws that, that established in America, other countries with Christian foundations, they looked at the Bible for guidance, for insight, thought these are good principles. Let, let's, let's have these. You know, even the idea of, of uh, bankruptcy laws, and you can declare bankruptcy in seven years, from what I understand, that, that goes back to biblical law of, of forgiving debt. There's you know, so certain principles are laid out like that. But you don't go back under it. You, you, you don't submit yourself to the Sinai covenant as if that's how you get right with God. Rather, those aspects of the law that were given in the Sinai covenant that are applicable for all believers will be reiterated in the New Testament or will be reinforced through the rest of Scripture as having universal principle, right? So, no, you're not under the Sinai covenant, but should you murder? No, it is sin against God to murder. You're not under the Sinai covenant, but should you commit adultery? No, it's a sin to commit adultery. You're not under the Sinai covenant. Should you keep the ritual purity laws? Well, well, no, that was given to Israel for a spe- specific purpose, and it's not a command for New Testament believers. All right, uh, Philippians 2, uh, Daniel. Philippians 2.17, Paul being poured out like a drink offering on the sacrifice and service of your faith. Dr. Brown, will you talk about this imagery a little bit? Yeah, so the image is you've got a sacrifice on the altar, now a drink offering poured out on that. So it's completely poured out. It no longer has any independent existence. It's been poured out, given holy uh, on that altar. So Paul says that I've been poured out on the sacrifice and service of your faith. So the altar is here. Your, your, your service is on the altar and I'm poor. I've completely given myself to serve you and what you're doing in this holy service of God. And it's a great image because the drink offering once poured out, the cup's empty. So he said, I've, I've emptied myself for you and poured myself out on your, on your sacrificial labors. Uh, Christopher. Hi, Joshua five thirteen and 14. Joshua speaks to the angel of the Lord when Joshua asks if the angel is for him against him. He says, neither. Curious why he says, neither. Thank you. Oh, yeah, because you have to be with him. You know, it's like Abraham Lincoln asks, is, is God for us? He's, well, we have to be for him. He doesn't take sides. We take his side. He's not being partisan. Well, I like you. I don't like you. I, you know, you know I'm, I'm for Israel. I'm against the, the people of Jericho. No, I. I'm God. You have to be for me. If you're for me, then I'll be for you. So he's announcing, I'm not just a warrior here that came here. Yeah, I'm going to fight on Israel's behalf. So Joshua, you're good because I'm obviously a mighty warrior. The angel of the Lord speaking, which I believe is Yeshua himself there. No, rather, I'm God. <laughs> you bow down to me. Take your shoes off your feet. This is holy ground here. You're, are you for me or against me? That's the issue. So it's, it's a great answer. No. Are you forcing us? No. But as captain of the Lord's host, I've come. And Joshua then falls on his face. Uh, Joseph, what are your thoughts on the recent red heifer news? What does it mean to Israel? Is this prophetic fulfillment by God's providence or the human resurrection of ancient systems? Go back to my broadcast from last week. 
I addressed it on last week's broadcast. Short answer, personally to me, I never look at these things or concentrate on them, but because it's big news to many religious Jewish leaders in Israel, and it heightens their anticipation of the coming of Messiah, it's of interest to me. Um, Isaiah, my friend who was a Gentile convert to Judaism was circumcised, later found out that Yeshua was indeed the Messiah of Israel, so now he's a little bit confused of how he should live. Should he live as a Jew, follow 613 commandments, live as a Messianic Jew? Should he live as a Gentile Christian because he was a Gentile convert to Judaism? Well, he's not a traditional Jew. He, he's not a traditional Jew, and his concentration should not be on how to keep the 613 commandments, many of which can't even be kept without a temple and Jewish sovereignty in the land, etc. Rather, he should understand how to please God as a follower of Yeshua. Now, in his case, he converted to Judaism, and then that's when he found Yeshua. So 1 Corinthians 7, Paul would say, if you're circumcised when you're called, called to faith, don't become uncircumcised. So let him celebrate Messiah as a Messianic Jew in the fullness of the Spirit. And if as he does so, he feels that he's not being true to his identity, that in fact he really is a Gentile, well, it's fine. You're celebrating the same Savior, the same Messiah, the same Lord, the same forgiveness of sins, and the same new covenant calling us how to live. So... He has to feel his way in his own skin, but he's certainly not a traditional Jew. If he lives as a Messianic Jew, because that's how he came to faith as a Jew, believing in Yeshua, fine. But if he ends up feeling more attached to certain Gentile roots he has in church settings and things like that, as long as Jesus is central and obedience to God is central, then he'll be blessed. Right, friends, one more reminder. Go to our completely revamped website. Share it with your friends. Ask drbrown.org. A-S-K. DRBrown.org. Can't wait to meet you there. Another program powered by the Truth Network.